She was a little girl who grew up in church. And around the age of five, she recalled liking other girls the same way that the other little girls liked the boys in school. She didn't have a term for it, but she knew how she felt. When she got older, she remembered the moment that she learned the term for this attraction that she had, lesbian. And she heard it from the preacher who was preaching that Sunday morning. She recalls, it wasn't the fact that homosexuality was condemned by the Bible. It was the underlying tone of the preacher and the church that caused her to hide her true feelings from the ones she loved the most. Having left feelings unresolved, she pursued heterosexual relationships with men. Maybe to push it out of her system, but all the men that she encountered brought her harm physically, emotionally, and mentally. Whereas women would continue to show her love and compassion, which is what she desired out of a relationship. In high school, that's when she decided to be a little bit rebellious and decided that men couldn't be trusted or supplied the love that she desired. So she came out as a lesbian and pursued same-sex relationships. And as she told her story, she remembers enjoying every single moment, the way she felt, the freedom she thought she had, the rebellion that she had for her parents. And every Christian that she would encounter would condemn her, would shove Bible verses down her throat, all but one. The only Christian who would actually listen to her hear her out. It was a family member, and she didn't treat her any differently like all the other Christians and church people did. So frequently, this, this woman would go to her, her family member and would rant, talk about her feelings, her desires, talk bad about other Christians, whatever it was. And during one of the conversations, she remembers that her, her family member, who is a Christian, told her, your life will continue to get harder, but that's God's way of trying to bring you back. And that's exactly what happened. Her life became more difficult until one day she returned back to God, saying that she would following, follow him again, but also begging God not to make her straight because she still did not have trust for other men. But... God, being who God is, would provide a very loving man whom she would later marry. Now, this story is told to hundreds of thousands of people all across the world, and especially in the United States, because it's the story of this woman named Jackie Hill Perry. Some of you may know her. Uh, she does conferences. Chloe and I, we actually saw her in a conference and heard her speak. But she openly shares her story. She's written a book about it. She shares her struggles with hundreds of thousands of people in hopes that they might repent of their sinful ways and return to the Lord, but also as a call for churches to do better. Now, I'll tell you this story to actually show you that the church hasn't done the best job addressing the hard subject of homosexuality. And we need to do better. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you're using the Bible app, if you have a journal, a piece of paper, I would encourage you to jot some notes down because we're going to be flipping through several different passages today. And I would encourage you to take some notes because we need to talk and you'll probably want to take some notes. 
Today we're taf- tackling this difficult question of what the Bible truly says about homosexuality and sexual identity. Now, just so we're clear, uh, this is going to be different than the other sermons that I have, clearly. Um, this is a much heavier subject, so it's going to be more of a teaching than it is a preaching. Um, I'm going to take the next 35 minutes or so. They're going to be longer messages, uh, but we're going to walk through a few different things. And my hope and my prayer is that you gain a little bit of compassion and empathy for where they are coming from. You, have some, you gain some understanding of why they believe what they believe, why they involve themselves in these things, and to understand their heart, get a glimpse into their struggles and ultimately learn how we as Christians, as Christ followers, can love them better. So what I'm about to do is probably going to shock some of you um, because I, I feel like you all have in your mind different things that I'm, of how I'm going to address this. But I'm going to tell you right up front what we're going to be doing, which I don't really give people my sermon outlines, um, but here it is. I'm going to build a biblical argument for why homosexuality is not condemned in the Bible. And the reason for this is not because that's what I believe, but because there's a theological standpoint for people in the LGBTQ community for why this is biblically okay. I need you to understand that so that you know that they're still looking in the Bible, the same Bible that we're looking at. But looking around the room, at least in here, I don't know who's watching online, which kind of scares me, but I don't know who's watching online. But here in the room, I'm assuming that most of you would say that the truth of God's word says that homosexuality is a sin and it's practice. And I would agree with you. So after I build this biblical argument for the verses that we're going to be going through, the most common verses, I'm also going to provide an argument for why it's unbiblical, why, why homosexuality in its practice is a sin. So I'll, I'll build it for you for why it's okay, and then I'm going to tear it down and tell you why the Bible, in fact, does condemn homosexuality, but more broadly, sexual immorality. After that, I want to share how the church should be responding in a more loving way to those who are dealing with same-sex relationships and attractions. Now, before we get started, I do want to make this very clear from the beginning. Throughout most of this discussion, I'm talking about people involved in a same-sex relationship. I'm not talking about same-sex attraction. So let me make the distinction real quick. Same-sex attraction is a temptation from Satan to us. To, to certain people. Not all of us deal with that type of temptation, but it's a, it's a real valid temptation. Now, if you never act on it, it's not sinful. Just like any other temptation that you have, you might be tempted to get drunk on the weekends, but as long as you don't cross that line, that it's, it's fine. Or if you have the temptation to gossip about someone and in that moment, you're like, well, I know I really want to tell them this really juicy story about this person, but I know I shouldn't because it's Right, You haven't sinned because you never crossed the line. So same-sex attraction is not crossing the line. What crosses the line is when you either declare that this is how you're going to live your life and if you involve yourself in those type of relationships. So let's take a deep breath together, mostly for me. And breathe out. Let's get started. 
Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament, mostly because just about every single argument, I, I did so much reading back and forth. Every argument that, that I have seen, at least, goes straight to the New Testament, right? It kind of bypasses the Old Testament. But I do want to tell you about the Old Testament passages that are typically bypassed. And the reason that they are is the common refute is that we're not under the Old Covenant anymore. So the things that are in the Old Testament don't matter as much. What matters more is the New Testament because the Old Testament is, we're under the Old Covenant, but the New Testament is under the New Testament, which is the law of grace that Jesus provides us. Now, I do wanna say the Old Testament is just as important and most of the New Testament will affirm a lot of the laws that are in the Old Testament. There are laws that it does not affirm because those are laws for cleanliness. Um, and ritualistic, but then there's also laws that are for ethics and holiness and morality. And those are the ones that the New Testament affirms. So this is why we always bring it back to the New Testament, because what, it, what is in the New Testament will always bring you back to the Old Testament. But I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time because uh, most of the conversation, if you ever have this debate, and I don't encourage you to have debates with people, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But if you find yourself in a debating situation, just know that they're gonna take you to the New Testament anyway. So I think that's more important for you um, and with the limited time that we have. So Old Testament passages that come up is Genesis chapter 19 with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you don't know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah, there are two cities. They're very sinful cities. Uh, you have Abraham's uh, nephew Lot is over there with his family. They're living there. And then um, a few things happen. You can read it. Uh, more in context, but they leave as where Sot or Lot's life turns and turns back, looks and turns into a pillar of salt, just to kind of jog your memory on the story. But in the story, it seems like God is destroying these two cities because of the homosexual acts that led up to the destruction. But we actually see in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, the real reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 says this. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. And nowhere in that verse does it talk about homosexuality at all. So they will make the argument, well, it's not talking about homosexuality there. Yes, there are certainly those acts, but he wasn't condemning those acts. He was condemning their lack of hospitality. So that's why he destroyed them. Now, I don't believe that that's a complete argument because when you actually look at the next verse in verse 50, it says also the reason that they were destroyed was because they were haughty or prideful and they did detestable things before me. Now, on surface level, you don't see it, but the word for detestable is also the same word that's used and translated as detestable in Leviticus chapter 18, which is where the conversation always ends up. Leviticus chapter 18 is the law of Moses. Um, it's part of the law of Moses. The whole book of Leviticus is the law. That's why it's called Leviticus. But Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, it also shows up in chapter 20 as well. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Some translations will say an abomination. Same word, same Hebrew word, same Greek word. So yes, it is clearly forbidden in the Levitical law, but didn't Christ fulfill the law whenever he lived, died, and rose again? So this is always where, why it ends up in the New Testament. Because if Christ truly 
fulfilled the law, then they will argue that this part of the law, this specific part where it talks about um, homosexuality in the context of a man lying with a man as he does with a woman, then that is part of the cleanliness, ritualistic law, that they weren't really addressing the actual issue. They're addressing something far deeper than that. So then, uh, and then, you know, you've got, well, didn't Christ fulfill the law? So then really we have to look at the New Testament on what Jesus affirmed and what he was against. But I will say this just real quick. If you start bringing up the Levitical law, make sure that you know the over 600 laws that are written in there because you'll be surprised at some of them and they will know it. They'll know it very well. They'll be able to point them out. For instance, that very next chapter, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Anyone got some polyester cotton blends in here that you're wearing today? Sinners, right? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Anyone have a beard and trimmed it? I didn't trim it this morning because I'm not a sinner, but I do trim it. So there's things like that that we would think of, well, that's kind of just unconventional. Like that's, that's clearly not under the new covenant now. And they will argue, well, you're just picking and choosing what laws you want. So that's why we're going to mosey on over to the New Testament and talk about this. Romans chapter one is where uh, a lot of this discussion ends up. The two other passages that we're going to talk about, if you want to drop them down real quick, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 19. Now, certainly there are more than just these three that address this issue, but for the sake of time and uh, for the sake of the argument, these are the most common ones that you'll find. There's a passage in 1 Timothy uh, that also addresses this. They'll bring up, but I'm just going to focus on these three. Um, instead of doing a, a large amount of study on every single verse in the New Testament. Make sense? Okay, so Romans chapter one, verses 26 through 27 says this, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even women exchanged natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their area or for their error. To build a case that homosexuality, according to this verse, is not condemned by this verse, here's a few things. One is they'll point out the word unnatural. Unnatural does not mean sinful. Unnatural means unnatural. If Paul meant for this to mean sinful, he would have said sinful. But he said unnatural. And the same word for unnatural, and this is true, I looked it up. The same word for unnatural is also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the same Greek word, when Paul criticizes men for having long hair. Now, most Christians would say, well, Paul in that context in 1 Corinthians 11 was just saying that it's unconventional. It's unconventional for a man to have long hair, but he doesn't condemn it. It's not a sinful thing. It's more of just a preference. So if that's true, then they would argue, why is it different for unnatural in this context to be sinful? Right? That makes sense. They will also argue that Paul in this context 
is, is talking about it being lustful. He's not talking about the action of homosexuality. He's talking about it being lustful. So Paul's referencing the out-of-control desire that comes with lust and not a person's sexual orientation. So when they traded natural for unnatural, it was a natural, loving, committed relationship, and they traded it for an unnatural, lustful, and sometimes abusive one. Now, here's why that's unbiblical. In the larger context, Paul is using this section to talk about the sinful desires of the people. So in Romans chapter one, Paul is referencing the natural as the natural order of things from Genesis before sin entered the world. The natural order created by God for sexual relationships being male and female within the bounds of marriage, which we'll talk about in a little bit because it's gonna come to that eventually. But let me read you Romans chapter one in more context so you can see it a little bit better. Romans chapter one, verses 24 through 32. There's more verses in this section, but I'm, and you can look at that if you want to. Um, I'm starting verse 24 though. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even uh, their women exchanged natural sexual relations for their unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves due penalty for their error. For, furthermore, right, starting verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Now, real quick, before we move on to our next passage. In verse 31, or verse 32, says, although they knew God's righteous decree after he's listed all of these sins, all, everything that's included in this section is talking about sinful nature of human beings. They knew God's righteous decree coming from the law of Moses is what he's referencing. That who do such things, such things as in everything that's been mentioned in this section, deserve death. Well, you've probably heard it said, the wages of sin is death. So if they deserve death, then they must be sinful. Now let's just say that you're not convinced about that. You're like, well, that, you know, that you're, you're doing some gymnastics, some theological gymnastics right there. You're trying to pull from other things. So I'm gonna bring you to 1 Corinthians chapter six. Seems a little bit more clear. I'm gonna use the, the English Standard Version instead of NIV uh, for the purpose of how they translated it. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, commonly, we'll use this and we'll say, well, it says it right there in black and white, that homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice that, those who are involved in those relationships. The common argument is that the word homosexuality was not added to the Bible till 1946. Which could have some truth to it. There's actually a documentary that came out um, and it, it said, talked about how the Bible translators re-looked at their translations and updated it. And when they updated it, they added homosexuality to it in 1946. Therefore, they will conclude by looking at the Greek words that are being translated, putting homosexuality in there was a mistranslation. And it should be referred to actually pedophilia or non-consensual same-sex relationships where one man is trying to dominate over another man. Now, I don't wanna go too deep into the Greek because if if I do, if I go there, I'm going to lose all of you. So um, if you want to talk about the Greek, I'm very open to that conversation. And Chloe will tell you, I will nerd out about it all day long. But we can have that conversation. I, I do want to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson, though. The main word in question is, I'm going to try and pronounce this right, too. Arsenicotes. Arsenicotes. It's not a perfect pronunciation, mind you, but, but this is the word that's in question. Uh, there's also malikos, um, which uh, comes up in this discussion too. Um, but really in the context with malikos, it's arsenokites. Though it's not always been in the Bible as homosexual, arsenokites, references back to Leviticus 18, and here's why. We don't actually know exactly what it means. Uh, Most scholars will believe that it's a slang term used for sodomite, referencing back to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which is how some translations, like the King James Version, used to translate it as sodomite. But it's a compound Greek word word that's formed from two different words, one of them being arson, which is the first part of the word meaning male. That's, that's what the Greek word arson means. And then kiotes, meaning bed. So together, put together, it means male bed. Now, when translators go in here, they know that most people who aren't versed in Greek in the context and how these words are used, that these people that know Greek like their backhand, like their second language, if, we, if they translate it, male bed, they're going to be like, okay, so that bed is just for males. Right? Females aren't supposed to go on that bed. It's just for males. Or we might think of something else. So they look at the, at the context of the word bed, and they look at it in other parts of Scripture. Other parts of Scripture will describe bed as a sexual relationship. In fact, when you um, see, and I can't remember exactly because I didn't put it in my notes, but in one part of the Old Testament, kiotes is described as the act of conceiving a child. So together, it means 
male bedding together to conceive children, which is the act of sex. So when we get this phrase, men lying with men as they do with women, it's a way to clarify what this Greek word actually means. And Bible translators will update Bible translations to bring more clarity to passages that don't have as much clarity. And if you want to know more about why they do this and you want to talk about Bible translations, go for it. Like, I'm here, I love it, I nerd out about it. But for the sake of moving on, let's just say that we're not convinced yet. Let's just say that maybe even you disagree with Paul. You're like, well, you know, Paul wasn't Jesus, and he wasn't. Paul wasn't Jesus. So let's just see what Jesus affirmed. Because people will argue that Jesus never addressed homosexuality, and that's true to an extent. He didn't talk about homosexuality. He talked about the sanctity of marriage, though. So in Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responds this, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united with his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here he's affirming a sexual relationship between a male and a female within the covenant of marriage, reinforcing the moment of creation before the fall of men, that this, that before sin entered the world, this is how God created it. And if we're, if Christ really restored what God is trying or what God wanted from the very beginning, then this is the order of things. This is the natural order of things. And anything outside of that is sinful. Now, I know what they would say in response to this, and I'm just gonna give it to you. You could say that Jesus was responding to a heterosexual marriage question with a heterosexual marriage answer. That he wasn't really addressing homosexuality here. He was addressing their talk about a heterosexual marriage. But uh, I would challenge this, and I, I don't know of anyone who's actually done this, so maybe it's wrong of me to say. But when Jesus addresses divorce and adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's not asked a question, he's addressing this and preaching this to the people, he describes a relationship between a man and a woman in the covenant marriage when he's responding and talking about divorce and adultery. He very easily could have used gender neutral language to describe a relationship between a person who loves another person and once they separate, then this is what happens with adultery or this is what happens with divorce. But instead he purposely chose the words male and female, a husband and a wife, his and her going all the way back to the created order of things in Genesis chapter one, verse one and two, when Adam and Eve were created and told to be fruitful and multiply within the covenant of marriage. And this is what the truth of God's word says. Now we can know all of that, but here's the problem. We can understand all that. You can know the Greek like your backhand, but if you start puffing out your chest and feel good that you have this solid biblical argument for why homosexuality is a sin, 
when you encounter people of the same, within same-sex relationships, in our mind, if we have this big argument built up and we just can't wait to tell everyone, we will go up to those who are involved in same-sex relationships and feel like we have to give them our doctoral dissertation on why their lifestyle is wrong. Leaving us hypocritical, judgmental, and condemning of people. But Jesus told us that we would be known by our love. He didn't say you'll be known as hypocrites. You'll be known as judgmental. You'll be known as arrogant, prideful, condemning. You'll know, a, they'll, they'll know us by our love. But when Christians say this, and I'm not making these things up, I've heard Christians say this. Well, I'm glad that's not in my family. They just need to get their life together and go to a real church. Really work themselves out. Well, they just need to be involved in a, in a regular relationship between a man and a woman, and then all of those feelings will just go away. I'm here to tell you, marriage does not fix your sin. Relationships do not fix your sin. Jesus fixes your sin. Another thing that I see Christian people do is they will turn a blind eye to the couple who's living together outside of a marriage covenant because at least they're not attracted to the same sex. We'll say things like that. Well, at least they're, it's not the same sex. At least they're, they're living with someone who they plan to marry and they're engaging in marital activities with someone who they plan to marry. And at least, you know, that man of God is with a woman and not another man. It's almost as if we've made same-sex relationships so much worse than any other sin. Something else that I've actually heard, which might shock you, but it might not, is you know that you know the saying, boys will be boys? I've heard this about someone else who was caught in an addiction with pornography, and I heard a Christian say, well, at least it wasn't gay pornography. As if that's so much better that he's been bound by this thing called pornography, lusting after other women. Same-sex relationships are not worse than any other sin. And it seems like, at least on, online, that Christians like to elevate the sin of same-sex relationships as the ultimate sin rather than just a sin. And when you have this mindset, you will start acting weird around people in same-sex relationships. Once you hear or you see it, you'll be like, ooh, I, I, I don't really know about that. Right? You can approach couples all the time who are living together. You know it's wrong. You can approach them and still love them. But then when it's the same sex, it's like, ooh, I, I don't know. That, that's revealing a sinful nature within you, just so you know. But it's not the ultimate sin, or have you forgotten the other verses to follow? Romans chapter one, again, verses 29 through 31. They'll be filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. 
No fidelity, no love, no mercy. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, or chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. Aside from men who have sex with men, there's also sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. All of those will not inherit the kingdom of God. The point that Paul was making was not for us to go and single out one sin. He was making the point that all of us are guilty of all of those sins. In fact, later in uh, Romans chapter two, he says, therefore you have no excuse. After he's listed out all those sins and said that they all deserve death, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing, realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? When asking how to respond to these issues, how to respond to these people, Jesus makes it very clear at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will also be judged. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Before I move on, how scary is that? That if you come into uh, a conversation with someone, you start judging them for the sins that they've committed based on the reality that you don't have that same struggle, you haven't fallen into that same sin, then what this is saying is that when God judges you on judgment day, he's gonna look at you and say, well, I'm gonna judge you based on the sins that I haven't committed. He hasn't committed any sins. So how harsh of a judgment is that going to be? Don't judge others because you too are guilty of some things. And this is why Jesus continues. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye when all the time there's this plank in your own eye? And then Jesus calls us and says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, we aren't bent towards holiness. That's not our natural desire to be more holy. Our natural desire is to follow our flesh, which will lead us away from holiness but we like to point out other people and their problems because it makes us feel good. Because when we can look at the speck in someone else's eye and say, hey, everyone else, look, look, look at the speck in that, I'm not pointing at anyone, by the way, but look at the speck in that person's eye. What happens in that moment is that you get filled with a little bit of pride because now you can hide behind your own sin. And the, on both extremes, I think there's two main types of Christians that do this. And then there's a third one, which we'll get to in a second. The one is so consumed by his or her own sin that they can't see past it. They can't see themselves as a child of God. So they struggle with how broken they really are 
so much so that they don't see themselves as a child of God. They worry about their redemption. They worry all the time if they're going to make it to heaven because of their sin, but they will constantly point out the sins of others because in that moment, they forget their own sin. And when you forget your own sin by pointing out the sins of other people, it becomes addicting and it becomes a thing that you enjoy doing because you don't have to think in that moment about your own sin. Now, the other extreme is the self-righteous person who truly believes that he or she is perfect and holy before God, that they don't struggle with any type of sin, that they're not sinful. They will call themselves a child of God, but in their heart, they're really saying, I don't need God. I don't need redemption. I don't need a savior because I'm holy. I don't have anything wrong with me. So I'm gonna point out the sins of others because it makes me feel more righteous to do so. So it's not about hiding behind their sins because they don't think that they have sin. It's instead elevating who they are as a person, making them feel more righteous and holy. And God says in scripture that he will humble those people. This is what we call the Pharisees. He will humble them. There's a reason that David in the book of Psalms Ask God continually, find any malicious way within me. Because David knew, I might not feel like I'm doing anything wrong, but I could be. And if I am, I wanna know it so I can fix it. This is looking at your own plank in your own eye before taking the speck out of another person's eye. I do wanna point out verse five, because I think whenever people were talking about this, they kind of, glaze over it. But it said, what Jesus says is take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you will see clearly to help remove the speck in your brother's eye. There's still a need to call for others to repent of their sins too. But the order of things that Jesus lays out is that if we're going to call out other people on their sins, we have to be dealing with our own too. We have to be looking and reflecting on our own sins and learning to deal with that so that we don't think that we're better than them, but that we see that we're still equal. We still struggle with sin. We're still broken. We're still hurting. We still need a savior. Because newsflash, you're not gonna be perfect here on earth. You're not. You are still a child of God once you've repented of all of your sins and you continue to work on yourself. You're a child of God that's still broken. And you're still waiting for the day that you will be resurrected with Christ when Christ returns and given that new body, that new uh, heaven, that new earth where that body will never be contaminated by evil, sickness, death, hurt, any of it. We're all guilty of sin and that sin separates us from God. And if any sin that we can commit separates us from God, then there isn't a sin that's worse than another. There's a reason that in the same list of sins, Paul puts murder, he puts sexual immorality, and he puts gossip. He puts all of those sins together because sin is still sin. We can put them in different categories all we want to, but sin is still sin. But as long as you turn from your sinful ways, repent and turn back to God, he will forgive you, he will redeem you, and he will call you his own child. 
And though you will never be perfect on this earth, you are no longer bound by your sin, but you're set free as a child of God. And all broken sinners have this hope. Not just some of us, all broken sinners have this hope. It's not excluded to anyone except or anyone who repents and believes that Jesus is Lord. But there's this third category of Christians, and I think most of us kind of land in this category, is we're just simply frustrated because we don't know what to do. It's not that we feel self-righteous. We know that we're broken, but we're not so, we don't feel so broken that we feel like we, we aren't a child of God. We feel like we're a child of God. We know that we're a child of God but we also know that we're broken and we just don't know what to do. We don't know how to help, right? People dealing with alcoholism, we've got Celebrate Recovery, we've got um, AA meetings, we know how to help them. But when this issue comes up, it's like we, we just don't know how to help. We don't know what we're supposed to do, so we get frustrated and we're asked to respond, so we respond probably not in the healthiest way. But I, I just wanna tell you real quick, I'm wrapping up. Love them the way that Christ loved them. Love them the way that Christ loves you. Pray for them. Invite them into your homes. Share a meal together. Be the one Christian in their life that won't condemn them, but is willing to have a conversation with them, that is willing to listen to them and respect them as a person. All right, listen to me closely. You can still love them without affirming their choices. You know how I know that? Because Jesus did it for us. He didn't affirm your sin, but he still loved you. He didn't, he didn't walk up to you and say, I'm not gonna use you as an example. He didn't walk up to me and say, well, Logan, I, I know that you're, you're sinful and you've been sinful in these ways, but I love you and you can keep on doing what you're doing because I just love you. That's what our culture would say. Well, I love you so much that you can live your life however you want to. I'll live my life however I want to and we'll just have this mutual love of affirmation. Love is not affirmation. God is love. And so when God loves you, and, he, and as he loves you, he looks past your sin that he is not affirming and loves you as the creation that you are. So you don't have to affirm someone's relationship. You don't have to affirm their choices to still love them. A pastor once said this regarding homosexuals. He said, we cannot hate them because of God's word and we cannot affirm them because of God's word. And oftentimes what we see in our culture is one or the other, but never both. We, we hate them because of God's word because we can't affirm them because of God's word or we affirm them because of God's word so much that we love them. See, you, you have to not affirm what they're doing, but you have to still love them according to God's word. So don't treat them like you don't know what to do with them. They are people. They, they're regular people, regular broken people like the rest of us. They're, they're like our family. They're, they're like our friends. See, God loved you and he sent his son to die for you despite our sins. So what, the sin that he hates would be overcome by the love that he has for us. And that's the same type of love that we have to extend to them. Love them so that 
the love that God has through us overcomes their sin. So treat them like people that you love. Treat them like family. Treat them like Jesus treated the tax collectors and the sinners. Get to know them and listen and hear, to their, hear their story. I often wonder this because in, in our culture, it, it's very elevated now on, on TV. You see homosexual relationships and people talking about their experience and, and bad experiences with church. I wonder how many people in same-sex relationships currently right now can point out at least one Christian who knows why they believe what they believe, who knows their story of why they feel the way that they feel. Instead of just shoving verses down their throat and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. This is what the Bible says, you're wrong, you need to repent. I wonder how many same-sex people in same-sex relationships can say, well, I know a whole church uh, of Christians who love me for who I am. They don't like what I do. They don't affirm my choices, but man, they love me. They have taken the time to listen to my story to get to know me as a person. I would say it's fewer than you think that have that experience. And so as this church, as we move forward in this year of outreach, I want you to know that this church, my kind of my vision for this church is that we're that church. That if someone who's involved in a same-sex relationship or has same-sex attraction walks in here, we love them like we love anyone else. We welcome them like we would welcome anyone else. And they would leave knowing that we don't affirm their actions, but man, we still love them. Like I wonder how many people involved in same-sex relationships drive on that highway and I wonder how we could impact them in such a way that even when they drive, if they don't ever walk into church, that they would look at our church and cannot deny that we love them. That's what I, I hope. So I would encourage you. We had a few questions that came in on the, on the pieces of paper talking about this. So we'll talk about it again. But to put it simply, be the one Christian in their life who loves them as Jesus loves them, who's willing to listen to their story and not condemn their story, but just listen, just to love, just to understand. And you can, you can disagree. You, you can look at them and say, man, I, I hate that they're bound up in sin, but I'm gonna keep loving them. I'm gonna keep on praying for them.